Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, part of us is searching for one reason to care about Excalibur number 122, The Search, part one, in which Megan is waiting for her prince to come, and so is Calvin Rankin. Excalibur number 122 was originally published <laughs> in July 1998, and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Dave Eaglesham on pencils, Scott Koblish on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters and Frank Peters on editing. Here we are in our actual final four, as I pointed out, uh, or was pointed out to me rather last week. I have been counting down wrong ever since our 11th final episode, which I described as our 10th final episode. Just <laughs> not, not my strong suit, apparently, but it really is the final four now, um, I swear, and we're going to do our best to have fun with it, or at least mimic the appearance of fun. But who are we? <laughs> oh, there might be other mimic funds in the script. We'll see what happens. I'm sure you know us all by now, but just in case, I am Dr. Anna Papar, a sequential scholar and person who talks sex and gender in comics and pop culture and unofficially manages public relations for one Kurt Wagner, Esquire. In the capacity of the latter role, I would like to take a moment to thank Dale Eaglesham for the restoration of Kurt's fabulous flowing locks. I see what you did there, Dale, and I'm grateful for it. <laughs> Moving on, I am joined as always for a little while longer by Matt. Have. Are you primed for Sentinels this week? Mm, I mean, are, were there Sentinels in this book? Did I miss them? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess. Cleverly is... disguised. <laughs> sure, sure. Cleverly disguised. Mm -hmm. yeah, whatever. Um, hi. My... <laughs> it's like, can you guess how I felt about this issue? Uh, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. Uh, co-host of this show, co-host of Vox Popcast, uh, editor of some book about Batman. I don't know. It's it's like literally the last 48 hours of my vacation. Um, and then I've got to go back and remember how to teach on Monday. So, you yeah, know, I'm doing I'm doing great. I, I, I guess <laughs> how much how much more can you really I mean, execute it by the X-Men. How I'm excited for this. Really, this is going to be a great win. Titans clash kind of kind of issue. I guess. Yeah, we'll get into it. <laughs> I have as, feelings on this. As I very comically, and I was very proud of this joke, pointed out on, on the Twitter and the Blue Sky, of course, always double posting these days, that this cover, executed by the X-Men, would have been so much better as finished by the X-Men, given the uh, composition <laughs> of this particular cover. A yeah. uh, lot of fists and eye beams and asses on this cover. Probably my favorite part of the issue. It's all yeah. downhill from there. <laughs> and they, they, they made the capital X, but then they, they didn't even do the thing where you just like leave off the e and write x dash acuted by the like that would have been something this lazy. is lazy yeah mm -hmm. don't even understand their own jokes it's really bad 
<laughs> anyway, my joke is superior. Andrew, it are is. you feeling <laughs> are you feeling merciful this week? Uh, hi, Andrew Demand, Sequential Scholars, Claremont around the Twitter account and the book and St. John's University. I was feeling pretty merciful until I got to read Megan's portrayal in this issue. Um, mm-hmm. And I would like to, because I have held my tongue on this for a long time. If you go to our website, which we created when we first launched, we have like a little bio blurb. Uh, and this is mine in its entirety. A- Andrew is a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. He's also the project lead of the Claremont Run, the largest academic study of Chris Claremont's X-Men comics, and regularly publishes work on Claremont and comics. Andrew understands and respects that some people would like him to forgive Brian for his treatment of Megan, but Andrew will never forgive Brian for his treatment of Megan. I don't want to jinx it because maybe the wedding issue makes me mushy or something like that, but I have held to that. Uh, and this is a <laughs> rough issue for Megan. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, her hair looks nice. Uh, Her hair looks lovely. Great hair. Um, Again, Dale killing it on the hair in this issue. But um, (laughs) yeah, we we will get into it. I mean, if you're wondering about our weird mood, I mean, it's partly us just being so close to the finish line of the podcast and we're getting a little bit punchy. But also, as Mav said, it's like the last few days before the start of the term. And, uh, you know, I was late to the recording. I'm like, there just are not enough hours in this week. So a little little peek behind the curtain of, of how we're doing. Everybody's been sick recently. We're just the term hasn't even started and we're still we're already clinging to the edge of the cliff. But things can only improve from here. And of course, I'm always grateful to have a break chatting with you guys. And of course, we are joined by a wonderful guest this week, who I am so, so happy to be back with us. We said we were going to try to close the pot off with some old friends, and that's not a commentary on our guest's age so much as the fact that we've just (laughs) known him for for a long period of time, and I'm getting lost in my words, so I'm just going to go ahead and welcome him. The pot is overjoyed to welcome back Dr. Michael Hancock. Hello, Michael. Hello. Glad to be here. (laughs) very very happy like I really wanted to have you back on for one of these final few so you know a refresher on Michael's bio for those who don't remember Andrew and I used to do a podcast with Michael called three panel contrast my own introduction to the world of podcasting and we still make use of many of the texts that you made me read for that podcast Michael over (laughs) at sequential scholars so I feel like our scholarly pursuits have continued to be entwined even though it's been a few years since we were doing that podcast I'll always be grateful for that but always great to have you back on our podcast and and yeah I'm just I'm just eager to get into it with you when I invited you you said you did have a specific memory of this issue I believe you even said that you had purchased it off the shelf upon its release so correct me if I'm wrong about that but I would love to just start with your memories of the end of Excalibur because I feel like you're somebody who from what I know of you Michael sometimes does the thing where you jump in and out of comic runs I know in the past you've done like the randomizer on Marvel Unlimited I know sort of like jumping into 100 issue 122 of something is not a new experience for you even though I know also know you've read a bunch of this series so yeah I don't know hit me with it do you have an original memory of this issue I do in fact um (laughs) It's like really formative to my comic book reading. Uh, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Really? (laughs) And you kept doing it? I started reading Excalibur with these last four issues. Amazing. And you stuck with it. You're still doing, you're still reading comics. I mean, there were four issues. Okay. No, I mean, I mean, you stuck with comics. This didn't just make you go, oh, this is garbage. I'm, I'm out. Like, (laughs) I've actually been like thinking about this a lot while rereading this that, uh, like, at the time, yeah, I was starting to read superhero comics for the first time, and I was about 100, 140, 90 miles, or 140 kilometers or 90 miles away from the nearest comic book shop. So my comic reading was limited to whatever the 7-Eleven that uh, was yes. a 40-minute drive from my house had. So mm-hmm. it was really like my understanding of the Marvel comics was just this like whatever random assortment happened to appear that week and puzzling this together. Where did Excalibur fit <laughs> with the rest of the X-Men? Uh, it was like it was in the middle of Operation Zero Tolerance, which was actually a reasonably good crossover to get into X-Men in that like every title was doing its own thing. And even in this uh, distilled form from its original, like it felt that Excalibur was doing something a little different. Uh, It didn't quite hold up on a rereading, but (laughs) I still have some of that sense of how it felt to read the original and be really like intrigued by this sense that 
like this is something a little different oh like have you not read like is would this would this have been your first time rereading the issue since originally reading it all those years ago it could be and it it left a favorable impression at the time. Like I remember these four issues very distinctly. I even got into like a flame war on uh, internet forum <laughs> over the ending of Excalibur, defending it against someone who was like the Generation X ending was better. And I was like, no. Wow. Yeah. Wow, Michael. Oh my goodness. We got to get into this a little bit more. So when when you picked this up off the shelf, like, I mean, are you just picking it up because it's like one of the only comic books that you have, that you have access to? Or like, did this one sell yes, itself? I picked it up because it had an X on the cover. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I'm buying X-Men. This is my identity as a comic book buyer. Mm-hmm. I am an yeah, X-Men we... reader. Here we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what's available to me. Sure. Yeah. No, but like, I can see that because I mean, re- like, hmm, okay, I have a little bit of a positive feeling about these final few issues. And I'm going to contextualize that, like, not as issues of Excalibur, like, as a culmination of this long-running comic book series that I love so much, not in that sense, but just as, like, issues of comics that exist that have, like, pretty good art. I mean, I do like De- I do like Dale Eaglesham as a penciler, and we got him on three of the final four issues, which is nice. And it's just a real basic regular X-Men story. It's not consequential in any way, but it's competent. You know, I like the characterization of Nightcrawler for the most part, and he is my favorite, so I'm always going to have that take on it. But like, it's a strange set of issues to talk about in the context of this podcast, because I know we're all going to have a lot of gripes about where the story winds up. I mean, you talk about that ending, like we're not there yet, but we'll talk about it when we get to it and our mixed feelings about that. As Andrew said, maybe the maybe the wedding will just all hit us in the feels unexpectedly, but um, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Well, it, I think it says something about my teenage confidence that I was like 100% mm. out of the gate. I've read four issues of this comic. Let me defend its ending. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Well, I mean, what's your feel about this sort of late period Excalibur? Because at this point, you've joined us for a lot of different years of the podcast, talking about a lot of different forms of Excalibur, including like something called Excalibur that I, like, I haven't heard of or read, but I mean, you know, just a rumor yeah. that goes around. So, I mean, what's your feeling about, about where we've arrived about this late period Excalibur. Does it feel like a completely different animal to you or does it feel like connected to those earlier issues? It feels very uh, underwhelming for a near series end. Like you look at a lot of comics when they're culminating and it's like, okay, we're going to have one last fight against our greatest enemy. Mm. And like, this is pretty much their last official mission. And it mm-hmm. is kind of half the team and underwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's... Like, it, was, it was great to read in 97, but going back in context, it's a little. Uh... Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, sums up a lot of my feelings too. I mean, let me ask you the question, Michael, of I went into the Benjamin Robb era of Excalibur wanting to be a little bit nice to it. And, you know, given how many episodes of the show we've done, something a little bit new is always going to be intriguing. It's like, oh, new writer, new era, something new to talk about. I have increasingly soured on it as we've gone along, but I'll put the question to you. Have we been too hard on the Benjamin Robb era of Excalibur? What do you think, Michael? I have a lot of fondness for these comics uh, because of when I read them and Mm -hmm. how they like kind of formed me as a comics reader but uh, especially these last few it feels very drawn out which is not something you want near the end of a series either. And yeah, yeah, it's hard to get behind them on that level. Yeah, I mean, we're clearly kind of treading water to get to that nice round number of 125 and have the wedding issue and all of that. So yeah, it's it's a tricky little set of issues. Definitely the story we have here didn't need to be two two issues but if it wasn't then we wouldn't get to talk to a couple of our favorite friends so you know i'm gonna look on the bright side but um let's get into the issue summary of this one then i'll come back right back to you michael for your first impressions of this rereading of this particular issue and we'll break it down a little bit more i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod if you had to wait on a cold deck for weeks or months so however long it's been for your deadbeat aristocrat superhero fiance we would at least make sure your hair looked pretty thanks again dale just to prove how very thoughtful we are. Here's a plot summary. 
Excalibur number 122 opens with Megan doing what she does every day, sitting on the dock waiting for Brian to come home. Elsewhere, specifically in Peru, Kitty, Kurt, and Colossus have used the information they got from Sabra to find their way to a secret base from the Operation Zero Tolerance event, or mission, or whatever. Kurt is quite sure they'll find the missing Professor Xavier at the base, and is so eager to prove it, he teleports inside without his teammates. At which point, he's attacked by... The original X-Men? Meanwhile, back on Muir Island, Moira watches Megan waiting, wondering why people always hurt the ones they love the most. She contemplates visiting Banshee, but doesn't want to leave Rain, who's still upset about Douglock spoiling their quarantine. Rain is not particularly assured by Moira's assertion that death is for the dead. Back in Peru, Kurt fights what appears to be the original X-Men, who turn out to be Prime Sentinels. The rest of the team arrives, and the battle breaks so the Sentinels can tell their tale. Turns out, they need help, as one of the mutants they brought to the base is responsible for killing all of the Sentinels. Excalibur are less than enthusiastic about helping a bunch of bigoted cyborgs dedicated to mutant genocide, but Kurt can't resist. He also wants to see if the imprisoned mutant is Professor X, but it isn't the Professor. When they break into the chamber, they discover instead one Calvin Rankin, aka Mimic. Finally, we return to Megan's lonely vigil, which on this particular day isn't quite so lonely. Brian Braddock has returned. And we will return to Brian's return next episode for now. Let's get into Michael's first impressions. I don't know, upon this occasion of rereading this issue, what, if anything, are you particularly eager to talk about? What stood out as intriguing or infuriating or any points in between? All right, this is a very specific rant, but... Go for it. I have, as like someone who started reading X-Men with Operation Zero Tolerance, I have very specific opinions on the correct use of prime sentinels great and this this issue disappoints on that level like the, <laughs> wow the, wow I mean, you're disappointed the, in the prime sentinels this is how low we have fallen <laughs> <laughs> like a prime sentinel the idea is that you've got a regular baseline human who has been implanted with nanotech so that if a mutant comes around they transform into a sentinel and they don't even know that they are sentinels uh, so they're sleeper agents and like the moral dilemma of fighting them is that you've always got to pull your punches because they're victims too. They don't know that they've been turned into these mutant hunting machines. If you've got ones that have done this voluntarily and know that they are, then it's just like bigots in power armor. It's like right. less. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it, you could change these out with like, you could swap them out with an aim team or whatever supervillain of the week and it would be pretty okay. much the same mm -hmm. yeah yes i take that critique because i mean it's like one of those issues that it actually establishes you know if the if the world building was working this is kind of a huge deal that there's this whole base and like they're apparently imprisoning like other mutants here which never really gets resolved <laughs> so it's sort of like raising a lot of questions that are that are not going to be resolved in the pages of excalibur <laughs> you know, I, I'm not trying to get too hung up on, but certainly if you were reading that whole event, I think those criticisms are entirely fair, Michael. Uh, let me pick up some some first impressions from, from the rest of the guys, and then maybe we'll get into mine a little bit. But Andrew, I, I, I sense that you're lacking enthusiasm for this issue, but is there anything that you're eager to talk about? Yeah. So so the mega thing I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, but the, the thing that kind of underlined the problems with this entire franchise for me was just, again, the relationship to sort of main continuity that we see displayed here and the lengths and contrivances that it has to go through to be an X book that the X books don't really want. You know what I mean? Like, like that relationship, like we're on the hunt for Professor Xavier, something that's going to affect the main sort of X-Men storyline. And no, you're not allowed to have Professor Xavier you're yeah. allowed to have mimic and like again we, we talked about the stupid phone tag that they always play um there's a line in this comic where they're arriving in peru and oh. colossus says should we call the x-men and they're like there's no time to call the x-men yeah <laughs> but they flew from israel to peru which, like yeah. I, I, I did math on this map style because it was bugging me. Peru is 3,000 kilometers <laughs> away from New York. It is 12,000 kilometers away from Israel. It's just, I don't know, man. It, it, just, it really felt like when you do stuff like that, you really underline the fundamental problem in Excalibur's place within the X-Men franchise. Yeah. Where would they find a cell phone, Andrew? It's 1998. Yeah. <laughs> and they're millionaires. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's really frustrating. And the more they try to get around it, the more they just call attention to it. 
Yeah, I mean, my general rule, I, I try to be kind about those things because I'm like, you know, if you mention that you know it's dumb, then I'm like, sure, at least you do, you know? <laughs> at least we're both in on this. But, uh, but Mav, how are you doing this week? Tell me about your first impressions. Maybe there's another way out of here. We could leave now and come back with the real X-Men. And the real X-Men. I loved that. That is my my first impression of this book. I mean, it's not. It's like my last impression of the book because it's almost at the very end. But like reading this again, Doug Locke says that. And I'm like, yeah, Doug Locke, you're right. Why don't we leave and come back? I mean, first off, it's horrible. I also, I like to be kind to new writers and Rob's not new anymore at this point, but I always like, you know, the writer of record, I, I've said that. But like when he says that out loud, wait a minute, why, why are we doing this? And I was like, yeah, we're on the same page. Why are we doing this? Why don't we come back with the real X-Men? I, I'm, I'm there with you, kid. And that's my, that's, that like pervades this entire book. Um, they aren't going to wrap up plot lines. I mean, that's the truth. Like there's a, you know, we've got a dangling plot line with rain. We've got, I guess we'll wrap up the Megan and Brian one, but you know, spoilers, not really. He's just back. And, And it was a lot of like, it's like, Hey, you know, Brian's off doing something. Moira's dying. Rain cares about that. There's a relationship between Doug Locke and rain. Everybody misses being on the X-Men. There's, you know, you remember Farron was off to go see his parents. Um, Nope. Uh, yeah, you know, um, like Micro Max, you know, like, like literally everything about this is, um, oh no, I'm sorry, actually Farron, see, I, I messed up. Farron's not up to see his parents, Farron's like sitting under a waterfall, Kylan's off to see his parents, like that's how little, like, I can't remember anymore because there's all these dangling plot lines. And, you know, a couple of them are going to be hand-waved away in issue 125, but, like, with a hand-wave, most of them are just, it just doesn't matter. They're not even going to try. Like, you've, you've been given five issues. You know how, like, sometimes when a TV show is canceled and you're like, hey, I wish they'd known so they could have wrapped things up and a good show tries to wrap things up in some, in some sort of a, a finale. They were given five issues. They announced to the public five issues before the end that we were going to be ending this series. So they had time to think of anything and instead we are going on a mission to find mimic a character that the x-men have not cared about since like 1978 <laughs> 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 and, and it's 1998 i mean I, I, and i didn't double like i didn't bother to double check when mimic's last appearance was because <laughs> i didn't care because they don't care like nothing about this matters there is a line in this comic where um it's a throwaway line where they're like the Avengers and FF almost gave their lives to stop Onslaught. No, they didn't. They gave their lives. As far as you know, they're dead. That's how that story ended. But you didn't read it because no one cared. Like, I mean, and I'm sure they actually wrote this story before that came out. And no one cared enough about this book to share the ending of Onslaught with Ben Robb so that he could, like, script <laughs> Yeah, it's hard, you know, because, again, I'm like... I don't want to be like unnecessarily harsh at the end of this run. And I mean, it's not like a terrible individual issue just on the basis of story, like other than those connections that you're mentioning. But like, yeah, I don't know. It is hard though, because it's the push and pull of of what this kind of serialized comic book business is. I mean, the work for hire business too. I'll like underline that as well, because it's like, we have this expectation as fans that the people creating these things should care so much that they should care as much as we do about a comic book like Excalibur, but it's also just a job, you know? It's like Ben Robb's collecting a paycheck to get this issue done. Maybe it's not the thing that he's most passionate about. And that push and pull can be strange sometimes because you just feel like, well, to be one of the few people that ever gets to write X-Men because it's really not that many people in the entire world who have ever gotten a chance to write X-Men. You should be the person who's the most passionate about that story in the entire world and yet it doesn't always work out that way, you know? I and, don't blame Ben Robb though because yeah. Ben Robb is not... So yes, I point taken, but I think where we're at is Ben Robb has not been given the chance to write X-Men. He's been given the chance to write Excalibur and mm-hmm. he was given that chance because apparently uh, Frank Pitteris and, and Bob Harris just don't care, right? Like they, yeah. like, like, and I mean, I meant that seriously. I cannot blame him for the flubbed onslaught line. I wholeheartedly believe that he wrote that because no one shared the ending of the story with him. Because otherwise, nothing makes sense. Well, like, and I mean, that should be on an editor too to, to like. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, know, yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. I'm blaming. 
I'm bl- blaming the editors in the company because like that's not like he, his job is to write this book and to do the best that he can and clearly the mandate is just get them out of here so they can be back on the real team because that's the man I mean it, it was a sudden shift we've been talking about for the last last few issues and this this book screams that no one wants to be here there's a lot of hey you know Cyclops is the real leader and you know do do we want to call the real X-Men and like just and even even the disguise of putting the the prime sentinels in like x-men garb just so they can appear on the cover because this was literally let's put let's make the x-men on the cover and work backwards from there nothing else about this makes sense i I just i so didn't care about like anything that went on here aggressively did not care and, and was annoyed constantly i mean i'll give the one other grain of sympathy to ben rob too that i mean i had this picture in my head of how i would try to end the book which would be to bring back mm-hmm. a bunch of those characters to do a plot that felt more Excalibur. I am 100% sure even if he wanted to do that, he wouldn't be allowed to do that. So, I mean, <laughs> what am I really expecting here, right? Like, I mean, right, as we're saying, the mandate on. was, yeah, like, it's not going to be, it's like, oh, let's do, like, three issues wrapping up that Kylan story. It's like, that would never have gotten approved. So, I mean, like, <laughs> get it, get it. I'm not blind to the realities here. Yeah. But, uh, so right there's, publication-wise, there's a very off chance that the heroes might have returned by this point i was i was like sort of doing the math in my bad. head too yeah but because we're in really like a... july 98 now so oh let me check but um, even then it's like oh so that that big threat of onslaught who wound up doing absolutely nothing doesn't yeah. make the point better <laughs> it's true. like under having undermined it, all of that just yeah, this is true. Remember that time the Actually, professor they failed to had, do anything? You're right. Maybe they, maybe they had just barely come back because Heroes, um, Heroes Reborn would have been like that era would have would have ended at the end of '97. Yeah, I guess maybe the return issues had been published. Yeah, because they. They start the hero's return started in ninety seven, so maybe Kitty is trying to very cleverly Yeah, okay, so this is covered in July. Um, yeah, there okay, so it was February through July of the relaunch. Yeah, okay. It would have they would have just been coming back right now. Yeah. So you know so maybe it's being clever. It's not. <laughs> I mean Yeah, it's full of weird references. Like mm-hmm. I don't know why you're referring to the blue area of the moon. Like, don't remind me of much better comics yeah <laughs> <laughs> a frequent problem in x-men of late yeah it's 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 a weird time to be ending our podcast on this because we're just starting the end of the krakoa era and mm-hmm. i've really been thinking about that a lot this week uh go read the comics xf coverage but um yeah just a weird time to think about endings and um in particular dissatisfaction with endings particular endings that <laughs> feature milk toast returns to the status quo after periods of possibility and excitement mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like very funny how this is sort of aligning with a lot of my feelings about that and i can't help feeling informed by it a little bit but uh, let's talk about some of the other stuff we have going on in this particular issue i mean i wanted to talk about eagle sham like a little bit because i'm sort of excited to have him on this book again a penciler that that i enjoy a lot of the time and i don't know i wanted to give people a chance if they had any any thoughts about him as a pencil i mean a pretty well-known penciler you know sort of sort of at the beginning of his career at this point fellow canadian that's always important but um i don't know what did you feel about the style of this particular comic michael like were you into it uh i really liked all of the more like kind of non-action scenes like the yeah uh megan's at the beginning with the birds like flying in and out of panel that's great that's a great see like yeah, I really liked that too with the seagull border. I like the yeah the return to her later. Even Moira just going down that staircase is, mm-hmm. looks kind of cool. Action sequences are a, a bit more hit or miss, but everyone's hair is great. The hair is, is great, and mm-hmm. there's it reminds me of remember in like X Men Red, like the not the current one but the previous one, uh, the Tom Taylor one. <laughs> Nightcrawler grows the beard and it's like over like three issues and it's like man he grew that beard in like eight hours <laughs> it's like a similar thing happens with his hair in this issue like he starts off like oh it looks like he's just growing it in he's got sort of like you know short spiky style like he's growing in the buzz cut and it hasn't started to curl and by the end of this comic he's got like 
a full head of like beautiful gothic curls and I'm like you know I'm not mad at it because I'm happy for the hair to come back but I'm like was really wondering how deliberate that was that yeah like he he grew that hair in like an hour I mean impressive I mean it clearly maybe is it one does. of his superpowers maybe he maybe. is fur- I mean he he is furry mm-hmm. who's to say how fast his hair grows right like I I mean like clearly my like my cat's hair grows faster than mine. It appears to, you know, she sheds a lot. So, mm-hmm. so maybe he just does that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can find a fanfic or two uh, yeah. <laughs> theorizing all different ways that Kurt's hair and fur works. If that's your particular line of interest, not suggesting it should or shouldn't be, but uh, I don't know. Other thoughts from, from Andrew and Mav about Eagle Sham style. How about you, Andrew? Was like it a style that was working for you? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, we've talked before. I mean, LaRocca would be the most obvious comparison. I, I like the idea yeah. of an art style that is vibrant, yet you can tell the the sort of youth of the artist in that it looks very unfinished and there's mm-hmm. kind of like um there's issues with proportions in most panels, right? Yeah. But it's playful and it's energetic uh, and it has a lot of like good ideas. There's no like phoning it in kind of element to it. Um, and I think um Excalibur uh, again as a book that has a pretty rich history of showcasing talented artists for the most part uh, is I don't know a, a natural fit here. So I was really enjoying the art even in its imperfections. Yeah, I think that kind of came across to me too. I mean, maybe that's why that's the part of the issue that I was the most excited about because the script does feel very editorial mandate phoned in. But at least when you think about a page, like again, that page of Megan on the dock with the seagull border, it's like that's somebody trying something out, you know, putting artistic flourish into something that doesn't necessarily demand it. And yeah, that came across to me too. I don't know. How about you, Mav? <laughs> this is going to be serious comic nerdy i like eagle shams art on the on this comic i don't feel like koblish is doing him any favors i mm. feel like the penciling okay. is is not being um adequately helped by the inking there's a lack of line variation line weight variation there's a quickness to it it's hard in places that i don't feel like it should be hard and the inking um is not it, it's, it's overly stiff i don't love the inking on this issue now as far as like traditionally, you know, I can draw a little bit. I'm not trying to claiming to be better. I am a horrible inker. My inking skills are are bad. And Koblish is a better inker than me, but not today. He's not. And so that <laughs> that stood out to me. And in particular, because I like the Eagle Shimmer pencils so much. Also, probably my favorite panel of the entire thing is also the opening splash page with Megan, because I love the way that he has played her hair energetically and also as a male gaze substitute, which is to say, you know, her femininity and her sexiness in this panel, this wistful longing for her boyfriend panel is defined by her hair rather than her boobs. It is still absolutely a cheesecake photo, right? But like they have sexualized her in a different way than both Megan is typically sexualized and that is typical for the era of comics. And it becomes an interesting panel, um, an, an interesting piece of artwork that is helped by just from a craft point of view, the way in which it follows a golden spiral that starts in the part one and spirals along a longer hair along the bottom it's an it's an inverted golden spiral and it's very it's very well done golden spiral for anybody who doesn't know if you look up golden golden ratio golden spiral you'll learn about the way composition can be done by the golden ratio and this is doing that and it's it's interesting and it draws me in so i like i like a lot of what has been done artistically for a book that does not deserve it yeah and with the seagulls too we have them switching from you know they're bordering the page as like Mm -hmm. obviously white birds on on the second page of megan's megan's sitting on the dock and then on a later page we go away to the to mission for a little bit but we come back and when she's having sort of a moment of doubt the seagulls are like black silhouettes behind her mm-hmm. you know, to do kind of like a animals as pathetic policy kind of thing so definitely i feel like he excelled at some of those emotional moments but i'm definitely with michael on the action scenes don't work as well but on the note of the inking 
I did look it up just now as you were talking because I was like, I really remember liking his art on 124 and 125 and he is inked by Scott Hanna and not Scott Koblish on those ones. So that's interesting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to rereading those and, and comparing it because I did think it was better on those issues than this one. So it must be sort mm-hmm. of a better match mm-hmm. for his style. By the way, again, if you look up some of Scott Koblish's other artwork, he's phenomenal. Like, I just, I just want you to understand he is, well, he is a very good artist. Just, yeah, sometimes anchors just aren't a good fit for this particular style of a pencil. I mean, if you haven't worked with someone before either, then you don't have that kind of relationship. And it's just sometimes you don't have enough time and it just doesn't work. It's not necessarily a commentary on the talent of any yeah. individual creator. Yep. He is still working today. Brilliant work. So just not this. All right. Let's talk about some of the characterization that we have here. I mean, we keep talking about Megan, so we can start with Megan. I was going to start with Kurt, but let's end with Kurt instead and start with Megan. I mean, Michael, you've seen a lot of different eras of Megan at this point. How do you feel about where we're ending it? You know, you're waiting on the dock for Brian to come home, anticipating the wedding. Give us your Megan take, Michael. Where? What are your feelings about where we're ending up with this character? Well, um, it kind of feels like she's been waiting on the dock for a few issues now. Mm-hmm. But also, mm-hmm. you could make a case that she spends a lot of time over the course of the series waiting for Brian to make up his mm-hmm. mind to something or other. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, dog. it's thematically consistent for her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we talked, I don't remember, I think it was the issue before last issue, because we were doing the Sabra issue last issue. We had a conversation about whether Rob is romanticizing Megan's actions here. And I want to be clear about what I mean like by that, because it's clearly like romanticized in like a generic sense, but like whether we think he's suggesting we should embrace what she's doing here as like a positive manifestation of romanticism, like a positive view of how love works. And I wondered what your take on it was, Michael. Like, do you think we're supposed to be like glorifying in Megan's loyalty to her man here or do you think there's anything critical going on here I mean is she doing the right thing what's being sold to us here based on the captioning in the on that first page it seems like Rob's trying to draw a parallel between Nightcrawler's search and Mm. her search and I guess that's kind of interesting one person searching by staying still one by going to Peru but I mean, Nightcrawler's search also doesn't really work out, so I don't know. I I don't know what he's trying to really draw there. One of the ways I could maybe frame it is it's Megan, she's doing the widow's walk, right? She's just, Mm -hmm. she's become inanimate again. The last time Brian left, she became a statue. She's a statue again. Uh, And and you have her close friend and a woman, and I think that's really important here. Uh, Moyer McTaggart looking out the window and and seeing what she's doing. And what Moyer was talking about is Brian. Do you know what I mean? And and I think that underscores the problem. Moyer is not like, Megan, what's wrong with you? Why are you thinking about this kind of thing? Um, Or even... Megan, you deserve the happiness that you want with Brian. That's not really the thing. The issue is, Brian, why won't you come home? And it's such a victory when he does, right? That's It, it fulfills Moira's prophecy, if you will. So it's, again, it's just a complete decentralizing of Megan and a complete lack of consideration for that character's history with a man who could literally be defined as her abuser. Um, so I don't know. Uh, to me, the whole thing is... is, is I think he's romanticizing the hell out of it uh, and it makes me uncomfortable. Well, yeah, and it's just, we've used that word agency so much for Megan lately. I mean, agency is at the heart of her character journey from page one of this book based on based on the nature of her powers, right? I mean, she used to be at least an empathic metamorph that used to be the nature of her powers, separating what she feels and desires from the desires and feelings of the people around her is always a challenge for that character. Again, not so much now that who knows what her superpowers are anymore. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, with that being the story of this character, to have her story ending with this total lack of agency, or even it's trying to sell me on her waiting on the dock for, you know, presumably she'd just wait here forever. I mean, it's like Fry's dog waiting for him until it dies in Futurama. That's like, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's like Megan in this comic. I fully believe she would wait on that dock forever. And for all we know, she's immortal. So it's going to be a long time. <laughs> but like, I don't know, like trying to sell me that that's her agency, you know, that she's searching. Because I'm really glad you brought up that parallelism, Michael, because I'm being sold this as an active thing because she's doing a thing. It's an action verb. She's searching when in fact, all she's doing is waiting. Right. And yeah, there's just, 
Uh, it bothers me for Brian's characterization too, though, because his concerns in the early part of this series, and it's been written terribly, but I mean, if I was gonna psychologize his departure from the series at this point, I mean, he's had discomfort with how dependent and attached Megan is to him, which actually I think is kind of a reasonable reaction because there have been times where she's like, I can't exist without you. My entire being is dependent upon your existence. And when he's been gone, that has been played out. I mean, again, she's going to sit on this dock and wait for him forever when he's not here. And that is a lot of pressure to put on a romantic partner. So I can see why he would have trepidation about that as well. And yet all of those elements of their relationship that were toxic it feels like we're just coming full circle to being like, no, that's what love is. You know, yeah. being toxically intertwined that. with a person whose entire identity is dependent upon the existence of you is a manifestation of what romantic love is. And I just want mm. to tell the kids at home, no, it's not. <laughs> this is really, really not a positive depiction of what love or marriage to me should be. But I don't know, Mav, you haven't had a chance to, to weigh in on this latest latest check-in with Megan on the dock. So if you want to, go ahead. Uh, okay. I mean, we talked about the negative stuff, and I largely feel the same way. This is this is dumb, and it's pointless, and it's uh, it screams of I didn't pay attention to the rest of the book. But I think the charitable way is they did, they did pay attention to the rest of the book. And in order to end, no, well, here's here's what I think happened. In order to end the book, because the book is ending, sadly, the book is ending. There were things they couldn't touch. Like there is no bringing back Rachel, right? Like that's not a thing that's on the table editorially at Marvel at this point in time. This means you also don't really want to play with the Rory story and who does, right? Like just let it go, right? Like no <laughs> no one's going to do that at the very end. You can't really resolve the Professor Xavier thing in the pages of a book that's ending. Nightcrawler, Kitty, Colossus they're going back to the X-Men, right? Like this is where they're going to return and they're going to have a new status quo. So you can't really do anything with their characters. I mean, that's the reason Pete Wisdom broke up with Kitty really is because we needed to get Pete Wisdom out of the picture so that Kitty didn't have to be bogged down by him as we return her to her rightful place in the X-Men. So love or hate Pete Wisdom, that's where he went. The one thing that you really can close off is you can, and happily ever after Brian and Megan. It's the one ending that I feel like Rob can give that is actually in his control to give because no one cares about these characters at Marvel right now. I went and checked. Um, Megan's next appearance chronologically is Excalibur Volume 2, number one. It's three years later. Like, um, the, the you know, the so when they relaunch Excalibur with a new team, her and Brian will be in that, and that's in 2001, and it, it's it's just a four-issue limited series. That's the next time you'll see her. And it's sort of a, oh, we have no plans for these characters. So, yeah, sure, marry them off, I guess. It's fine. And, yeah, it, it does sort of ignore a lot of the subtext that was um, that was set in motion by Claremont at the beginning and carried up to some extent by Davis. But even Davis's take on Megan was a little different than Claremont's take on Megan. And both of those have been over for years at this point, right? We've complained a lot. You know, Andrew has made the joke that, what are Megan's powers? You know, she has an entirely new power set every issue because no one really has a handle on who this character is anymore. So just sort of uh, the the thing to do with her to end it was to go and happily ever after. And that's it. I don't know what's going on. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, that's my... That, no, it's weird. Mav, my, my... Mav, are there sentinels in the room with you right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a robot. No, there's a robot that controls my security cameras. That is, that's that's it. Telling me that I guess there was. I guess my internet went. I guess I can unplug it and just keep it on Wi-Fi so that it stops happening. That was my. That was my take on it. So you guys can edit and fix me there. <laughs> No, I'm leaving that in because I am picturing your cat becoming a robot cat because it was a sleeper agent this entire time. That's how you do the prime signals. Make them animals. (laughs) Well, no, so Andrew talked about his his jealousy of of my forge-like house. That is is literally the, that was, yeah, it seems to have stopped. Um, That is the controller. And I don't, and I wonder if it will even show up on the, on the audio. The thing that you were hearing was the controller for my security camera system. System that like routes it to this is I'm sure fascinating for everybody um, I have a weird smart home that I talked to and that was it warning me that there were some internet problems
problems that seem to have resolved themselves um, with the way the security cameras were working. So if you were trying to rob my house, too late, it's already fixed. <laughs> surely i've mentioned on, surely i've mentioned on the pod before that if i had a robot assistant it would talk to me because i'm assuming i had the choice it would talk to me in the smarmy voice of jeffrey donovan from burn notice um just in case Ooh. i haven't gotten that <laughs> on record uh that is what i want anyway let's talk about kurt a little bit as the final thing because this is ostensibly a kurt issue it's sort of ostensibly a story about his <laughs> leadership i mean i know yes. i know like Colossus has been Rob's point of view character and I feel like that is still the case here because Colossus is the one that we see like doing thought bubble monologuing reflecting on everything and despite the fact that it's sort of a story about Kurt which you know would make sense because Kurt finally reckoning with the burdens of leadership in the final few issues of Excalibur when that's essentially been his character journey since day one would make a heck of a lot of sense I don't think it's done well but I'm sympathetic to that impulse but yeah it's not it's not really from his point of view but I don't know I thought I'd ask you about it Michael because you know together together with Kitty and Brian and Megan and Rachel who's not here anymore you know this is a character who has defined this book for the run of the book and as I argued very early on in the series is even a character whose previous adventures are a big influence on the texture of Excalibur you know Nightcrawler was previously a multi-dimensional sex farce character and so much of the early run of Excalibur is that type of adventures so I don't know where do you feel about where Nightcrawler has arrived at the end of the book? You know, what did you make of, of the take on this character that we're getting in these final few issues? I think you could make something out of, and maybe this is what Rob was going for, make something out of this encounter here, that he's going up against the original X-Men. He recognizes that, no, they're not really the original X-Men. Like, it could have a nice, like, you're not the X-Men, I'm the X-Men kind of mm-hmm. moment for him where he's like no I'm the one who's like grown and this is my heritage not yours yeah. but like and at least that would fit with maybe not the growth of the series but the fact that he's returning to the X-Men but instead we it doesn't make a lot of sense for the Prime Sentinels to fight them since they're asking for help yeah that didn't make any sense I, I read that like three times on this reread through and I was like wait wasn't there oh no they were just doing that to put Mimic at ease supposedly but then they fight Kurt for reasons Kurt at ease. wait what oh I, it, that makes no sense it, it is well, so I mean weird. it makes more sense for Mimic than Kurt but I don't, I don't know I don't want to yeah. I don't want to talk I don't want to talk past you about it Michael so like I mean I don't know what did you feel about the depiction of the character kind of like as a leader here I mean did that did that part of this story resonate for you at all it felt a little I mean for for uh Colossus to go well Cyclops wouldn't do this that mm. felt a little out of nowhere uh I considering, you know, it's not exactly a comparison that has been relevant for either of them for a long time. Yeah, I mean, we did have the one, the Matter Area issues had a very good, well, written by Davis and, and drawn by Joe Mad, reckoning with Kurt and Cyclops and their different styles of leadership. But I mean, that that does feel like something that was so long ago now. It was years ago in this book that we had that conflict. And it, it's a bit weird to surface it here. I mean, I think it would make sense, again, if this was a deep story about Kurt's trauma and his continued doubts about being a leader because we just haven't gotten back to that story in a long time it's just been simmering in the background but I don't know I I wanted so much like you know my Nightcrawler fan brain really wants to fan fiction this into working and I feel like I can do it yeah. but then when I when I look at what's on the page it just everything is happening because it has to happen because even that line about comparing Kurt to Cyclops it's like well that doesn't even make sense in terms of how no. each of those characters operates it's just it a makes line no sense. it, it makes doesn't make zero sense, sense in terms of their characterization because, no it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense in their previous relationship that line is written because they're returning to the X-Men and at this point in the history the X men are led by cyclops but like from the experience of if you wanted to make this make sense in the experience of what kurt and peter's relationship should be is he should say storm wouldn't have done that yeah but they're not going back to storm's book they're going back to scott's book and that's why he that's why he says it it's dumb i hate it so much because i like i think Actually, you are I think being they- charitable 
I think they do wind up going back to Storm yeah, this leader, which is... Oh, God, yeah. they, could they end up on... Yeah, you're right, they do. Yeah. So then it makes no so sense. It even makes less sense, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, like, my, my, my problem with it... It's a good team. It's like, you know, it's like Kitty and Kurt and, and Logan and, and Storm, yeah. and I'm like, yep, sure, I'm do. here for that team. Yeah. yeah, they do go back to Storm's team. Yeah, and see, that that's so that means it makes zero sense, because what they're doing, like, it's just... I think you were being charitable by making it want to work. It's regressive because <laughs> it's regressive because um, Kurt had worked out his doubts a long time ago. This isn't the Kurt trying to learn how to lead the tech net. This is a different guy. And like, he hasn't had those issues in a long time. He's been fine. And for Piotr to notice it and make that comparison, like Piotr has been around for a long time and he's not said anything like that. It, it, it doesn't, makes sense for them to be bringing it up other than to say hey we need you to be okay with taking a back seat soon so we're gonna you know so we're just gonna plant that seed of doubt you know because this book is ending it, it it doesn't there's no narrative way i can fix it in my head without me adding just lots of text that's not on the page and i don't want to do that because i think the character deserves better than that i think the character of character of kurt deserves better than that i think the character of piotr deserves better than that and frankly even though he's not a part of excalibur it's a disservice to scott because it's just using scott at, it's ignoring what the the troublesome journey that scott had throughout all of x-men and x-factor in order to you know sort of yeah but scott was the perfect leader no he wasn't like literally scott's entire storyline is that he is is that he is a troubled reluctant leader who's often bad at it but still does the best he can anyway that's scott's entire character and this ignores that in order to like sort of status quo something that doesn't deserve it well it just he does keep making me think of the joe mad and davis troll story though because mm -hmm. there's a grain of it that's similar here like kurt goes off on his own and you're like oh that seems like it's not a good leadership move but maybe it is and that's kurt's mm -hmm. unconventional style of leadership but like in the troll story that made sense because that was a plan that scott kurt had and because scott is there for them to have a for them to have a conversation about it like you can play off scott scott and kurt are both in that story this is just a throwaway line this is not that story there's that but in this particular comic i don't even understand like kurt going off on his own like it actually is a really bad idea everybody can't find him mm -hmm. there's no fails immediately. yeah fails immediately and like how did he even know how to get into the base it just happens because mm -hmm. they wanted to do the scene of him like again it's just another example of stuff happens in this comic because we needed it to happen and it doesn't make any narrative sense and i get that he's being reckless because he's supposedly so driven to find professor x but like come on <laughs> like, it's like he's just gonna teleport into a base that he's never seen and leave his whole team behind because what like the if the, in a better story maybe he has a death wish and this is a super dark moment in which he wants to be punished or something you know similar to some of his actions way back in the mutant massacre but i mean that was a storyline that was built up over time and we had a sense of his psychology and it made like this is just not that i just can't help comparing it to so many better stories and <laughs> how this one just is things that happen but for no narrative purpose it also mostly turns out that it's fine I mean, yes, yeah. he does. It is a mistake, but like he teleports yeah. in and it's like, find your, find your own way in. And then, so they do, and they find their own way in and they help him and it's fine. And also like, or, you know, just like spitballing here, but you're a teleporter and you can carry us you can because take you've, them. Yeah. you've done this before. Like we, we, we know for, I mean, like, I know there's a strain if he carries more than one person at a time, but there's only three of them. And we've seen him teleport three people before. You know, he could do it or he could just do two and count on the fact that Kitty can walk through walls. You know, there are there are solutions to this problem. We just didn't want to use them because mm -hmm. everyone is dumb. Like they've all forgotten how their powers work. <laughs> yep. Yep. I can't argue with that. All right. Well, let's go to some final thoughts. See if there's something fun or funny or annoying or good that each of us want to circle back to. We haven't talked about the Moira and Rain part of this comic at all. So if yeah. anybody wants to talk about that, they're welcome to. <laughs> but uh, well, I'll come back to you first. Andrew, anything that you want to circle back to from this issue? Maybe just to, to pick up on Matt's point there, I, I think 
one of the things that was kind of trying to be something consistent was Rob was really setting up some sort of compulsive relationship between Nightcrawl and Professor X. Mm -hmm. And like, it wasn't really there, I think, in like old X-Men issues and early Excalibur issues. Um, and in fact, I would say they have a, a pretty good relationship. And I don't think Kurt ever viewed Professor as a savior necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but so, so it's manifest here and it might be the way to explain what Rob is trying to do. And I think it's an interesting angle to take. And it's also a good, interesting angle for um, the future of that character, Nightcrawler, going back to the main X-Men franchise where he has the potential to interact with Professor X in a consistent basis. So that thread for me might have gotten sabotaged again by the sudden ending of Excalibur, um, or maybe there's more Rob could have done with it. But it's something I've been tracking for a few issues as I kind of like this as an idea. I I'm just not finding it, it paying off or or taking even like like a clear shape the way that I think Rob wants it to. Um, but as a way to deepen Kurt's character by adding nuance to pre-existing relationships that are important to him, I really like that as a strategy. Um, I, I just wish we could have seen more where he was going to go with that. You know, that's such a hard one for me, Andrew, because obviously I have a... Well, I think obviously if you've been listening to me talk about the character of Nightcrawler at all for the past few years, but I have a preferred take on the character where he is a little bit more F you to Professor X, you know, the like, I'm not going to use the image inducer thing, that kind of guy. And I even remember when Lisa from Simply Amazing was on during Prometheating stage on this pod. And even she was like, <laughs> listen, when Draco was coming out, I was like, sure, you know, it's bad, but I can handle this. And then the part that really broke me was at the end of the story where Kurt says to Professor X, you're my true father. And then she was like, no, I'm out. I'm yeah. out. I can't. <laughs> because there is like, like, there's part of me that I think that that is a fair read on the character that he does view Professor X as his savior. There's enough comics establishing that and it's consistent with Kurt's behavior in terms of Professor X is often a real asshole to Kurt, like even post the image inducer thing. And Kurt always forgives him. He always goes back to Professor X. He always becomes the beacon of that dream again and again and again. He is like a very conformist character in a lot of stories, even though I would like him to be more rebellious if I had sort of my way. So I think it's valid, but I don't like it. No, I hear you. I, I think I think my personal read on it, and again, this is completely invalid because it never actually got to develop. I kind of felt that Rob was trying to do Kurt reconciling his sense of debt to a bad father. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that, yeah, he is an asshole, uh, but Kurt does feel the sense of obligation and duty to him, either for saving him from a, a, a crowd of villagers trying to kill him, or more interestingly, for being the, the cultivator of this mutant dream that has since defined Kurt's life and given it purpose. But also, he's an asshole. And I kind of like that, and I think that that works with some of the anger that we see um, when, when Rob is having Kurt reflect on that relationship. That um, would again actually, never be and that would actually be the basis for a really cool comparison with Cyclops, who has very similar yeah. issues. Yeah, because I mean, Kurt's that second generation though that has a little bit of in theory, distance from Professor X. I mean, that's why it's always been a little bit strange. Because, I mean, you think about think about that classic X-Men issue. You know, I can't remember which one it was, but it's like one of the first ones where it's like a flashback to them being at the mansion, like the Bolton Claremont story. It's a flashback to them being at the mansion. And it's the one where, like, Kurt is talking to Bobby and then Bobby's, like, you know, really uncomfortable with them being there. And then, like, Kurt's like, oh, you need to get over your preconceptions of, of mutants and everything. Like, we can look different. And, like, there's <laughs> a lot of like well is it like bobby's basically being like a bigot like in that scene which again is interesting when you read bobby's gayness back into that there's like it's a very right. uh, loaded scene when when you read that back into it you know his discomfort about kurt's visual difference and the fact that kurt is not uncomfortable with his own visual difference makes bobby very uncomfortable which is interesting i mean it's an interesting character beat regardless of bobby's gayness but it becomes additionally interesting because of that anyway um the, the fact that kurt can't pass and doesn't <laughs> want to anyway 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 getting really off topic but again when i think about sort of like like the rebelliousness and the self-assuredness of that version of Nightcrawler, you know, which was being written in the 80s as a reflection on a story from 1975. Like, he's such a different character mm -hmm. in, like, 1998 than he was then. Mm -hmm. So, like, I can think of different ways to rationalize it. I... I... <sighs> I don't know. I think what you're saying makes sense, Andrew. I think that the character definitely would do that for Professor X, even if he doesn't fully embrace the person that Professor X is, because Kurt has been shown to be completely loyal, problematically so, to his terrible right. parents. And, you know, maybe he just doesn't <laughs> all know. Of them. All of them. He has many terrible parents. All of them. Yeah. So... 
mean, like his three evil mothers. I mean, this just keeps happening to him. So I, uh... And yeah, Ugh. all of his parents, even Azriel, if you want to count him. I mean, like, what are you doing? I do not. <laughs> Yeah, well. well, not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah, yeah not, not anymore. Right. At least that happened, which is, it's sort of weird that we haven't really talked about that on the pod previously, but it just hasn't sort of come up with any of the stuff that we've been talking about. But uh, I don't know, whatever. I already tweeted about it. I'm happy the retcon happened. I still don't like that writer. I had some issues with the execution, but very happy it happened. Uh, I don't think they're going to change it back anytime soon. And it pissed off all the right people. So happy about that, too. <laughs> Mav, anything from this comic that you want to circle back to in closing? Uh, yeah, I'll take the Rain and Moira story. Um, why? Rob is a good enough writer that he knows that these two pages that he's given this are not a, a service to the story that he was trying to tell. Like, uh, like, okay, spoilers. He's not going to be allowed to kill Moira off and he's not going to be allowed to cure, cure her, right? So, mm-hmm. so therefore, the entire quarantine story went nowhere. And it went nowhere because she was gung-ho about doing this. It was the only chance that she had. It was the only salvation for Munich kind. It needed to happen. The quarantine was ruined. There's nothing stopping her from going back in. She could just, you know, like, this is literally the, oh, I was going to quarantine myself with COVID, but, like, I accidentally went to the door one time, so now I'm going to take a cruise. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, yeah. like yeah. let's go all in. <laughs> yeah, like, the, 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 the logic of this makes no sense. And then... I, I mean, I understand that she's like, they're going for a, well, but Doug Locke's shown me the way and that's why I forgave him. And then she's telling her daughter, you know, I want you to live because I'm going to die. You don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about me dying just because I'm sick. You know, go live your life. You're young. No. I mean, I, yes, I understand that a parent doesn't want the child to worry too much, but like Rain is an adult woman. She's a young adult woman, but she's, you know, she's not four. You know, she is at least 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. And she's allowed to be sad that her mom is sick, right? Like that is a, that is a natural yeah. human reaction to have. Um, and I, and I, I get that Moira is allowed to, um, to like, be like, oh no, I want you to be able to move on with or without me. But like their conversation is weird because you're allowed to be mad that your mom is sick and you're allowed to be mad at Doug Lock for, you know, essentially, you know, ruining your chance to save her, even though, again, she could just go back into quarantine. It's not the like being in quarantine was not what was making her experiments work or not work. So he didn't yeah. really ruin anything. All he's done is taken taken rain out of quarantine like moira could continue mixing chemicals or whatever right like so like everything about this story doesn't make sense and i charitably want to say that rob probably had ideas of you know what to do with the storyline that were basically eliminated because you know he's losing these characters and he's losing the book so it it wasn't resolved it was just kind of a no we're going to be done and then i believe there will be a, a a doug lock series that you know rain will be a you know a cast member of and this will progress some there but not it's just sloppy and i'd rather you just dropped it like the rory thing than like remind me of the missed potential with these two pages that are just inscrutably stupid i will agree with michael that the artwork on the stair scene is nice but like they're inscrutably stupid. And then I also want to just end by pointing out that for some reason, rain has a uh, picture of noted sex symbol, <laughs> dum, dum Dugan hanging above her bed. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, or possibly groundskeeper Willie, but I like to think of, I like to think it in the car, in the context of the Marvel universe. She is just, you know, you know, a, a young, this is her childhood bedroom. So, you know, a young girl recently removed from Catholicism has certain needs and those needs, fulfilled by dum dum dugan hanging above your bed <laughs> oh my god i was wondering who that was supposed to be i don't know oh but that's god. that's that's what i've decided that's who it looks like yep. <laughs> nope accepted accepted i mean i was just gonna point out briefly that this isn't the first issue it's happened but it was the first issue that occurred to me to really point it out the way we've had this like just complete I don't know when it happened it happened between issues at some point but this thing that happens to Doug Luck at the end of the series where he becomes this like goofy bumbling comic relief character that just Mm -hmm. like came out of nowhere and (laughs) 
it's just real weird to like see it here and remember like oh yeah that just happened and I did think about rereading this that that would become clearer like that was a character progression and I was like no that really just is a choice that he mm -hmm. made two issues ago and that's just what we're doing now and it's so bizarre. He makes jokes he discovered yeah. humor he makes jokes he's like oh yeah never mind like like what do you he went from being complete robot boy to lovesick teenager to bumbling doofus yeah it's weird who like thinks he's gonna die all the time and is always stumbling around and i was like no i'm pretty sure he would have like techno organic reflexes and invulnerability and invincibility and immortality but you know whatever it's fine i, I don't know i just i think he just felt like writing a different character so he did and i guess you're allowed to do that he's also a um, robot who's over overcome by psychic backlash so you know that was neat yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to touch it. Uh, Michael, anything from this comic that, that you would like to circle back to in closing? This comic that you have a chance to talk about on a podcast so many years after first purchasing it at the 7-Eleven as a teenager. Who would have thought that would ever have happened? Uh, three things. First, it was <laughs> like a lot of fun to return to it, even, even with a bit of uh, less rose-colored glasses. Second, I like the headsets they're all wearing. I think they're cute. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> love it. And third, uh, I love the idea that you've put into my head, Anna, about Prime Sentinel cats. So I would mm. like to declare my intention to write a Grant Morrison We Three Prime Sentinels crossover fan fiction. Mm. <laughs> would read, Michael. I'm there. <laughs> I uh, I haven't checked out Marble Meow. I cannot say whether that is the the plot of that book or not, but hopefully your ideas nah, haven't I, been trodden on there I yet. Bought, I bought it. it I mean, it, it, it would fit in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time may come again. So we will wrap things up there. As I was saying before the break, I'm just, uh, I'm unbelievably glad to have you back on this episode, Michael. Uh, you were sick for a bit and we weren't sure if we were going to be able to make it work, but I am so happy that we did. Before we go, we must, as always, remind our lovely listeners of the stuff you get up to. I gave you such a shitty bio at the start of the podcast. So um, <laughs> do remind people of where they can find you if you would like to be found and and if you feel like repping our old podcast, you can do that too. Eternally relevant, can be listened to at any time. But yeah, where can people find you, Michael? You can find me either on Twitter or on Blue Sky at uh, Person of Con. And yeah, for three panel contrast, I would like to particularly plug uh, episode. 26 of our old three panel contrast podcast wherein we compared uh jack kirby and matt fraction and steve livers jimmy olsen mm. and i spent oh, yeah. months of my life reading a hundred issues of superman's pal jimmy olsen all to do <laughs> a like two minute joke at the very beginning <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect summary of our previous podcast which we used to do a ton of prep work for actually and it's part of the reason that i think we had to stop yeah, doing did. that podcast we used to do book reviews and like we had this whole thing of like you're repping certain issues and you had to do summaries we like we're working hard on that podcast <laughs> as i was saying earlier in the pod i remain so grateful for all the stuff that you made me read for that pod i am classic in the fact that I don't read anything unless it's for something and I have often thought that we we need to start getting a book club or something back together just so I read things that aren't I don't know terrible Excalibur comics which is all I've been reading of late but anyway um, always great to reconnect with you Michael thanks so much again yeah thanks for having me so next, if you're searching for The Search Part 2, you won't find it because Excalibur number 123 is actually called Lost and Found. It features more Prime Sentinels, more Calvin, and also Megan goes dress shopping. We'll be here to hash it out. I was actually surprised by that. I typed in the like outline, The Search Part 2. I assume that's what it called. That was a part one, but no, no. <laughs> 
But in the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow <laughs> us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. The 2023 holiday special is still pretty new. You can find those via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur, you can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via X slash Twitter and Blue Sky at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Do leave us comments on the website. We've been getting a ton of porn lately, and I would love to get some non-porn comments. Thank you, Mav and Andrew, for another Prime Convo. Thank you, Michael, for searching the rubble with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Yeah, the, the porn spam bots have really found our website. They've been leaving us a lot of comments. I did have to disable notifications. <laughs> <laughs>